0: Forest city church anyone and everyone. I want to tell you guys a story today um, that I've never actually told on a microphone. It's a really significant part of my story of my life and pretty much all my close friends, um, whether they were with me during this season of life or not have heard me talk about it because it's a really big part of who I am. It's a really big part of how I've understood Jesus, of how he showed up for me in the face of massive disappointment and heartbreak. And um, the nature of the story involves hurt. It involves being hurt, being wounded. Um, It took years of therapy um, to work through. And I don't know that the people on the other side of the story have ever heard me say these things. I don't know if they know that I feel this way. I don't know if they believe to be perpetrators in something that I walked through. Um, And so I'm, I'm grateful and honored to be able to share this story today, but I just ask for your grace as I share it. When I was in college, I got my first taste of some of the challenges that artists face in the quote unquote music industry. I was 20 years old. I had just released a record that I wrote and co-produced. I had just gone on my first tour with some friends that were also artists, and I was confident of the artist that I was becoming and of the young woman that I was at that time. And I remember um, in college being introduced to two record producers by a friend of mine in town. When I walked into their studio for the first time, I was clear about who I was. I knew that I wanted to make music about Jesus. I knew that I wanted to stay authentic and true to my story and tell my stories through song. And I remember when I walked into that studio, that recording studio, that first day, one of those producers introduced himself to me and I'll never forget it. He stuck out his hand. He looked me up and down. He shook my hand and he said, I could make a whole lot of money off of you, girl. And I thought it was a joke. And so I forced a laugh and I forced a smile. It wasn't a joke. And so I found myself two college tuition payments later in the most difficult season I had ever walked through. These producers became my mentors, almost like big brothers. Sometimes they felt like spiritual leaders in a sense. And from the moment that we started working on my record, we were constantly butting heads. See, I had a feeling before I stepped into this scenario. It, it wasn't a don't do it feeling. It wasn't a, hey, Lauren, run for the hills feeling. But there were flags that showed up as I prayed and fasted and sought so much counsel about whether or not I should work with them or not. And because I knew they loved Jesus, because I knew they were Christian men, I trusted them with my unsettlement. I trusted them with my lack of peace about it and said, you know, something in me feels like spending this money, making this investment at this time in my life might not be right. And they said, oh, Lauren, that's fear. It's just fear of spending money. You know, you're in a really hyper-religious environment you, where everyone has a really small mindset about what's possible for them and their future and their career. And essentially they manipulated me away from my feeling, away from my check and into what they wanted me to do in that moment. What I thought was wise counsel, there was a lot of coercion behind it. And one of the producers in particular... He would lead worship in the lobby of the studio and then he would take me behind closed doors with the other producer and cuss me out for literally hours on end when I didn't want to do what he wanted me to do. He would yell, he would get hot, he was he was extremely tall and he would stand up and he would put a foot on the ground and he would say, "God strike me dead if what I'm saying to Lauren Scott in this moment is not true." And I felt so confused. They would always tell me, you know, you can't hear God's voice on your own. You really need our help. You're so afraid of money. Your family knows nothing about the industry. Your mom's business experience can't counsel you through the stuff you're working through. You don't know who you are as an artist. You don't know what you want you're double-minded, you're so back and forth, you're so confused, you're the problem. You come in here and you cry and you complain and you throw these fits and, and it was just, it was never ending. And even though one of the producers was far more volatile and toxic and aggressive than the other one, there were two men in that room. And one of them I considered to be a friend It was his studio. We'd had a little bit of a relationship prior to that. I'd gone to cookouts with his family and friends and, and I would stay at the studio with all my community, my people, and we would eat Chinese food in the late hours of the morning and write songs together. And there was a real friendship and community there. And so what I couldn't fathom is that how he remained silent as he watched his business partner and friend rip me to shreds for a year straight. And one day I sat him down, could barely talk through my tears. And I said, how have you allowed this to happen to me? This is your business. This is your studio. This is your place. You built this and you sit here and you say nothing. And if you wanted to do something, why don't you ever stick up for me? And I got an answer, but I never got an apology. And I walked away from that experience and there were threats of, of, of bringing lawyers into the equation and to this day spending almost $40,000 for a record that I don't even own the masters on a hard drive. This was a moment in my life where I learned that unfortunately, we as humans can be completely emotionally unaffected when we get up close to the pain and the suffering of other people. Sometimes, me and you, even as Jesus followers, can find ourselves in moments where we could and we should feel compelled to do something when we see people suffer and yet we do nothing. Can you think of a moment in your life when someone saw you at your lowest and they had the ability to step in and do something about it and they did nothing? If you've been there, I'm with you. And you and I both know that it's a confusing, devastating, isolating feeling. And so today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus shares a parable about someone who got up close and personal to a person when they suffered, but this person actually chose to do something about it. And so would you open up your Bible with me if you brought it today to Luke chapter 10 verse 25. Can you give me a thumbs up when you, when you find it, it'll be on the screens as well. The text reads this and a certain lawyer, an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he replied, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this habitually, and you will live. But he, wishing to justify and vindicate himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers who stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went their way, leaving him half dead. Now, by coincidence, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite came down to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, a foreigner who was traveling came upon him and when he saw him, he was deeply moved with compassion. And he went to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own pack animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. And then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved himself a neighbor to the man who encountered the robbers? And the man answered the one who showed compassion and mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and likewise do the same. So this story begins when a Pharisee, a lawyer, an expert teacher in the law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's important for us to remember is that eternal life here is not talking about getting a ticket into heaven. Eternal life is better defined as the absolute best quality of life, the kind of life that God would want us to live on earth here today. And so the Pharisee is asking Jesus, what do I have to do to live a life that pleases God right here and now? Friends, our baseline understanding as believers should be that life is best lived the way that God says it should be lived. This whole journey of Luke, if you remember, we're titling Calling All Disciples, and if we want to be faithful disciples of Jesus, we have to believe, we must choose to believe by faith that every area of our lives is actually better off under the lordship of Jesus than if we were the God of our own lives. What we do with our money What we believe about sexuality, what we believe about marriage, how we talk to our children, how we talk to our spouses, how we treat people when no one's looking, how we handle business in the workplace. Every single matter of life should be under the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ. It takes a real revelation from the spirit of God to believe this. And so right off rip, Jesus is telling the expert lawyer, I assure you, you will live the best quality of life possible if you would love your neighbor as yourself. If you would look to the needs of your neighbor, just like you would look to the needs of yourself. And Jesus says in this parable that three different men All of them are traveling down a road when they see the same man who's been beaten, left for dead, stripped of all of his possessions. And if you notice in the story, there's a phrase that repeatedly shows up. And when he saw him, the Pharisee, the Levite, the Samaritan travelers, travelers, all of them laid eyes on this man, right? And each of them had an opportunity to do something with what they saw. And I bet what would have shocked the Jews when they heard this story is what Jesus is implying that the priest and the Levite who both would have been Jews saw their Jewish brother in the middle of the road and didn't do anything to help him. I'm sure the Jews would have been extremely offended to hear Jesus imply and maybe explicitly say they broke the law in that moment. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't tend to his wounds as they would have tended to their own. But do you know who did? A Samaritan man a Samaritan who the Jews would have showed hostility toward because of his ethnic group, because the Jews believed Samaritans had nothing good to offer the world. The, The phrase good Samaritan was an oxymoron. They didn't believe the two could go together. The Samaritan would have been someone who the Jews would have avoided at all costs. They literally went around them when they were in their part of town. And yet Jesus is implying the very person who you can't stand is the person who obeyed the law in that moment. And I'm sure the Pharisee was... I'm sure his blood was boiling hearing this from Jesus. But Jesus was so intentional in singling out the Samaritan. He said that he felt led to have what? Compassion. And there's a word, a Greek word for the word compassion. It's splachnizimai. Can you guys say splachnizimai? Amen. If you were in the Bible Haven, you learned this word, right? Right, right? And the front half of that word, it means internal organs. So Jesus is saying three different people came across a man, laid their eyes on him, bleeding, half dead, stripped, taken of all of his possessions. And only one of them was moved to the point of literally his insides being turned when he saw what he saw. So we can infer that to extend compassion to someone, compassion to someone literally means that you're so emotionally affected by what you see that your insides literally turn, that you feel it in your guts, that you physically feel affected in the same way looking at them in their pain as you would if it was you in pain like that. And if you remember in the story that I, I shared earlier, I sat down, my producer, I sat down, my mentor, I sat down, my friend, and I said, how could you sit there and do nothing? And I wondered for years after that moment, if he felt nothing standing in that room, I wonder if it just didn't matter to him. I wonder if he just didn't feel affected, but I think all of us every single day, we witness people suffering. We witness people in pain. Brothers, sisters, neighbors, other human beings who are vulnerable to being hit hard by the cares of life. And when we see them, what do we see? When we come face to face with them, do we have this unrelenting draw to help? Or do we walk away and then try to justify our behavior later? See, what happens when we're driving to work and a friend calls us and they're in the middle of a panic attack? And they say, I didn't know who else to call. You were the first person that came to mind. I literally can't breathe. Can you help me? And in your mind, you consider what they're saying, and maybe there's a little bit of splochnesimai. Maybe there's a little bit that first half of your insides turned, but you think, you know what? This meeting that I have at nine o'clock, there's a promotion hinged on this meeting. So as much as I want to sit in the parking lot for a little longer and chance being late and help you and sit with you in your pain, I need that extra cash. See, something in us might want to make one choice, but sometimes we make the other. What happens when someone in our church community, in our family, maybe in our neighborhood is subscribing to a lifestyle that we don't agree with, or maybe our theology is different? And they're facing injustice. They're facing prejudice. And they need us to use our voice to advocate for them as a human being to stand with them, to use our voice to say, what's happening to you is not okay. But we feel conflicted because if I use my voice to support them as a human, then my church family, my religious community is going to be confused about my theology. And and they're going to judge me. And they're going to wonder if I'm a real Christian or not. And so we're deciding between, am I going to sacrifice my reputation or am I going to sacrifice obedience to God? And sometimes we choose our reputation instead. We watch injustice happen over and over and over again to communities of people who don't look like us. And something in us says, yeah, I don't know if that's right but I don't want to be wrong today. And if I'm gonna look at my television screen and watch the same thing happen over and over and over again and acknowledge that that's wrong, I got to untangle some things I was told at the dinner table as a kid. I have to undo some, some, some mindsets and thoughts about people that I've had my whole life. I might have to remove myself from some relationships I might have to speak up when I'm at dinner tables now with friends who say things that don't sit right with me. And sometimes in that moment, we might feel like we see something that's wrong, but we, we, we have to be right. And so we have a choice and we choose us over them. Why does this happen? What is it? that's holding us back from choosing our neighbors, our spouses, our parents, people who we disagree with, our kids, what is holding us back from choosing them instead of us? I was talking to Leonard and Andrea. Andrea is who you saw in that video. We call her Andy too. And they're two of my dearest friends in the whole wide world. Um, They're on the leadership team at the Elgin campus. And I was talking to them a couple days ago. And I said, when I think about this, when I, when I, when I ask myself how we can stare at people in their suffering and in their pain and do nothing, you know what I think would fix it. I think if we just saw them the way Jesus sees them, I think if we looked at them and we saw the image of God in them, if we believed that they belong to him, that he bled and suffered and hung and died for them, then maybe we wouldn't choose us over them. And Leonard, he does this thing where he'll kind of lean back. And if you know him, he'll kind of, he'll kind of make a face. And, and I'm looking like, I mean, didn't I just drop a gem? Wasn't that revelation? Like, isn't that just it? Isn't that just period? I thought it was a mic drop. And he said, Lauren, I just don't think it's that simple. I said, what do you mean? Shouldn't it be that simple? shouldn't be holding each other, seeing each other the way that God sees us be enough to cause nizimi, that, that compassion to arise and to produce action in us. And then I remembered what Paul said in Romans seven. He said, I know my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I love God's law with all my heart, he said. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Did you catch that? Paul said, there's one thing that is keeping me from being freed up to live the life that Jesus called me to live, and it's a thing called sin. When we are, like Paul said, at war in our minds, there's an internal battle happening, and we start to question, God, do you really know what's best? I don't know if I believe that the best quality of life is lived when I put my neighbor before myself. Because do you realize if I pull over my car and I help the friend in the panic attack, I could I maybe I won't get the promotion. And God, you gotta understand, I need the promotion. And when that's our mindset, what we have to recognize is maybe we have an attachment to security, an attachment to provision, an attachment to money because we don't believe that Jesus is our ultimate source. And that attachment ties our hands behind our backs. And it keeps us from being freed up to obey the Lord, to live the life that he called us to live. And if we have anything tying our hands behind our backs, we have to break that attachment. We have to get free from it. We say, God, do you realize that if I make my neighbor feel seen and known in this way, if I use my voice to support them, to love them, to show them that I see what's happening them is wrong, despite, despite what I think about them or the way they're living or whatever, people are going to question me. They're going to question my theology. They're going to question all these things. And that might reveal some fear of man. That, if that's your thought process, if that's my thought process, it might reveal that our identities are attached to what people think about us, that our worth is attached to the opinions of others instead of the opinion of the Lord. And that attachment will tie our hands behind our backs and make it, un, make it impossible for us to please God. And if that's an attachment we have, my friends, it has to be broken. We have to be set free from it. We say, Lord, if I begin to acknowledge that that my community, that me as an individual could have played a part in the injustice that I'm seeing on my television screen, I got so much work to do. I don't even know where to start. And that work is costly. I've been operating this way my whole life, thinking this way my whole life, living this way my whole life. And that might reveal an attachment to comfort. That might reveal an attachment to the status quo. It might reveal an attachment to the fact that you would rather as long as you're flourishing, you actually don't care that someone else is not flourishing. And again, that attachment will tie our hands behind our backs and prevent us from being able to love people the way that God has commanded, not suggested, but commanded that we love people. And so these are not inconveniences, it's flat out sin it flat out leads to death to separation from God we disqualify ourselves from living the quality of life that he paid for us to live in so Paul says in Romans 7 he ends and he says who will set me free from these attachments that dominate me who can deliver me from this thing called sin that's causing me to live so far beneath the quality of life that God says he has for me? Who can free me? The answer is Jesus. My friends, you and I, we don't have to be like puppets tied to the strings of our desires, tied to the strings of our attachments, tied to the strings of our job security, tied to the strings of our identity, tied to the strings of, of worth coming from other people. Jesus came in and on the cross, he cut the power from every attachment that we have to anything that does not lead to life. So we don't have to walk around literally attached to these things that control us, that manipulate us, that dictate how we live and who we love. We're free of those things. We just have to give them all to him. Jesus is the only one with the power to free us from those attachments to free us from anything that's not offering us life. That's keeping us from loving our neighbor, from seeing our neighbor and moving toward them in action and doing something about it. Jesus is our all in all. And whatever we think we're going to find when we choose ourselves over our spouse, whatever we think we're going to find when we choose ourselves over a coworker, when we choose ourself over a neighbor, when we choose ourself over anyone who we see is suffering, we're not gonna find it there. And I'm so grateful for Jesus. And I'm so grateful for the power of the cross and what it means for us. Paul continues in Romans eight and says, because you belong to him, the power of the life giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead we now follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. You think about your flourishing first. You think about your paycheck first. You think about your comfort first. You think about your pleasure first. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. See the Samaritan on the road. He had a choice. And it blows my mind that in that moment he didn't see someone who'd outcasted his community. He didn't see someone who'd hurled insults and, and, and racial slurs at him. He saw a human being battered and beaten and half dead, stripped of his possessions. And it was, it was compassion. It was it was the ability to recognize, I don't care who you are or what you've done or what you've been through or where you've been. I have the ability to lay aside anything getting in the way, my bitterness, my frustration, my hurt, my pain, my resentment to, to lean in and help you and bandage your wounds in this moment. So for you right now, I'm sure there's a person coming to mind. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's a coworker. Is there someone coming to mind who, if you're honest with yourself, you know that you haven't loved them in the way that you would love yourself. You haven't tended to their needs the way that you would tend to your own. I want you to think about that person or that relationship. And then I want you to think about what's getting in the way of you reaching down and helping them, of you reaching down and using your voice to support them, to bandage their wounds, to answer the phone call. What's getting in the way? Is it bitterness? Is it resentment? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it your ego? Are you complacent and you just don't know why? Is it prejudice? Is it racism? Because Jesus wants to free you from that thing. He wants to release you from that thing so that you can live the best quality of life possible, eternal life. As you experience the other side of obedience, as you lay down the things that are hard to lay down, you give up the things that are hard to give up and you trust that his word is true. You trust that when you choose your neighbor over yourself, when you prefer your neighbor as you would like to be preferred, that it will lead to abundant life. That the money will still come in if you pull over and take the phone call. That maybe in your spiritual community, you can be an example of what the love of God really looks like no matter what people think about you. And I just want to remind you, remind myself and you and me today that we were once the man on the road. That you and I were dead in sin. That you and I wanted nothing to do with God. That you and I hated God that you and I chose separation from God, that you and I literally offended him, that we sent him to be nailed to a cross. But the word says that you see just at the right time, when you and I were powerless, he died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saw you and me on the road, and he leaned in, and he went low, and he let nothing get in the way of loving us in that way, of bandaging up our wounds in that way, and freeing us from the sin that enslaved us despite who we were and what we did to him. I remember the night that I encountered the Lord for the first time in high school, and I I was shaking, and I kept saying over and over and over again, how has he seen everything about me? How does he know everything I've done behind closed doors? And yet and still, he made this choice for me. Because friends, on your darkest worst day. If you hear the Lord whisper to you and dispel an army of lies about you, you look for an opportunity to find somebody who needs one person to whisper to them on their darkest day and tell them what's true about them. I had a vision one time and and I was working through everything that happened in that season of my life in college. And I saw myself in that studio room and I saw it on fire. The whole building was burning and the Lord walked into the burning building and he threw me over his shoulder and he carried me out. And if you've ever experienced the mercy of God, if you've ever felt him throw you over his shoulder and carry you out of a burning building, you want to run into a burning building and carry somebody else out. That's what compassion is. It's I've seen the mercy he showed me. I want to go show mercy to somebody else. And I want to tell you what blows my mind. A couple years ago, after I moved to Rockford, I was singing at a wedding with a friend in town. And we were sitting at a table after we'd sung a Shania Twain song. And I get a phone call. And the phone call is from the producer. Hadn't talked to him in probably five years. And I pick up the phone and he says, Lauren, do you, do you live in Chicago still? I said, I, I, live, I live a couple hours away. Yeah. all the, 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 the irony of the Lord. He said, I have a dear friend who was just robbed at gunpoint in Chicago and I need somebody to help him. And do you know that without hesitation, I said, what can I do? And to be honest, I don't know if five years prior, God would have literally given me an opportunity to be a good Samaritan. And if he had given it to me, I can't tell you based on the bitterness and the resentment and the hurt and the pain that I would have leapt, that I would have even answered that phone call. And so I want to tell you today that if there's someone that's hurt you, that's offended you, that's wounded you, and you're like, God, I don't know how I could ever love that person, serve that person. Honor them the way that I would want to be honored. I'm telling you, Jesus has the ability to get rid of the sin, to get rid of the real pain, the real hurt, that would still hold you back from obedience to him. And I'm not negating that there are people in your life who it's like boundaries and and you can't go there obviously, different story. But I knew in that moment I was freed up to extend radical love to someone who deeply hurt me. And that's only because of the mercy and the grace and the power of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your blood, that you have the power to break the hold that sin has had on us in our lives that you have the power to cut us loose from the attachments that we have, to comfort, to pleasure, to selfishness, to self-righteousness, to pride, to our egos, to fear, to prejudice, to shame, to whatever could hold us back from loving others the way that you have called us to love. And so Lord, I'm asking you to demonstrate your power in our lives demonstrate your power in this room, to demonstrate your power in our church, God, to release us from those things, to set us free from anything that's tying our hands, from loving and living the way that you've called us to love and to live. And God, I do pray that we would see our neighbors, that we would see our spouses, our kids, our co-workers, strangers, strangers, I pray that we would see every human as made in your image, as loved by you, as chosen by you, as called according to your good pleasure and purpose, and that we would treat them as such. That we really would love our neighbor the way that we love ourselves, that we would treat our neighbors the way that we wanna be treated, and that it wouldn't just be lip service, that it would really be who we become We thank you that you reveal to us the places where we're not like you. We ask that you would make us like Jesus. Open our eyes to know him, to respond the way he would respond and to be transformed. God, we love you, we trust you. And we just believe that your way is the best way that the best quality of life, that the way to please God is found in your word, found in your commands, found in living life the way you say it should be lived. And let us put our love and our trust in you and walk in your way for all of our days. It's in your perfect and precious and matchless name, Jesus, that we pray.